Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, September 8th, 2011. The eve of our event in Elk River, Minnesota. Entitled Double Cross by the Crossing Church. Today's program is actually in preparation for that event and to uh, create a resource for the people there in Elk River so they can understand the correct biblical understanding of uh, giving to a church you know anyway thank you for tuning in you're listening to fighting for the faith my name is chris rosebrew and i'm your servant in jesus christ and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment the goal of which help you to think biblically help you to think critically and help you compare what people are saying in the name of god to the word of god there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there as a result of it we've got to do the biblical discernment work and compare what people are saying to God's word in context, rightly dividing the word of truth and separating truth from error, light from darkness, twisting of God's word from what God's word really teaches. Um, today we're going to do a singular topic, and that is, is we're going to be listening to a sermon uh, preached by Robert Morris uh, entitled The Prosperity Test. Uh, Robert Morris is this guy who claims that uh, you know that he's discovered well he's the one who's discovered a brand new teaching that nobody else has ever discovered and that is this that uh, your money is cursed until you redeem it now the reason why I'm doing this is because Eric and Kelly Dykstra teach the same thing in their church and uh, so we need to uh, do the biblical counterpoint work so that you can hear the false teaching that, that specifically Kelly Dykstra teaches regarding why people need to tithe and give offerings. And and where did she get this from? Answer, she got it from Robert Morris in his book called The Blessed Life. And we're going to let Robert Morris speak for himself, and then we're going to provide the biblical counterpoint. So here's the deal, because ultimately what the question is that's on the table is not necessarily the question as, as to whether or not your finances are cursed until you redeem it, because that's really not what the Bible teaches. The, the question that's really on the table is, is that how does a Christian, in light of the fact that Christ has perfectly fulfilled the law in our place, how are we to look at the Mosaic law regarding the commandments regarding tithing, and do they apply to Christians today? And uh, so, you know, and because ultimately this comes down to a, an issue of correctly understand the dis, the difference between the Mosaic law and the biblical gospel. And what we're going to use today 
to uh, we're going to spend a lot of time in the book of Galatians. If you want to sp- open up your Bible right now to the book of Galatians, I'm going to begin in chapter 1 and we're going to probably go through most of the book of Galatians today because it's important because that sets the foundation for properly then understanding what the Bible teaches regarding tithing and it'll open your eyes to what the Bible teaches so that you can see the error and the heresy of Kelly Dykstra, Eric Dykstra, who, and what they learned and teach uh, from Robert Morris. So we've got a lot of ground to cover, and since we're going to be doing an Eric Dykstra update, this is going to be a resource that's available uh, for the people of Elk River to, you know, to again, listen biblically to what's going on, hear the comparative work so they can see for themselves uh, the error and the heresy of uh, Eric Dykstra. But, but since we're doing an Eric Dykstra Crossing Church update, we have to play our music for them. Here we go. It's a lot. 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 Like, like. Pastor and servant. Master and servant. Pastor and servant. Pastor and servant. And servant. Anyway, yeah, the reason we we play that is because Eric Dykstra has a false understanding of pastoral authority. He thinks that uh, uh, the people in the congregation have to submit to his vision. In other words, uh, he's there to rule and to reign, and the people in the church are there to serve and make his vision come about. Um, that's uh, 180 degrees backwards. By the way, um, the Bible completely silent about uh, this concept of pastoral vision casting. Bible says nothing of the sort. In fact, Jesus himself is the as the Lord of the church is the only one who gets to cast vision and the one who gets to give the mission for the church. And he's already done that. By the way, you can find that in the uh, two places: uh, Matthew chapter 28, uh, the Great Commission, and in Luke 24. Uh, a parallel passage that talks about going and proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. That's the mission and vision statement of the church, and it stands until the end of time, until Jesus returns. Individual pastors, they don't get visions from God uh, to do church a specific way or anything of the nature. That That's that's heresy. That's not what the Bible teaches. Anyway, um, Let's uh, let's let's talk about first and foremost uh, what it is that uh, is being taught there at the Crossing Church. And so, what we're going to do first is we're going to play um, our, our first soundbite. This is uh, Kelly Dykstra uh, during the uh, offering time there at the Crossing Church uh, during the sort of the Samurai ser- uh, sermon series. And you're going to hear her say something that is strangely similar to um, the heresy that Johann Tetzel was teaching. At the time, uh, just at the time, right before Martin Luther wrote his ninety-five theses, um, and it, 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 I, I kid you not, it's it's eerily similar to the um, the uh, Johann Tetzel's famous uh, uh, jingle that when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Yeah, I'm not making this up. Um, yeah, here, 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 listen in. Here's uh, Kelly Dykstra. 
Um, but we also, in a couple minutes, we're going to have an off- opportunity to give an offering. And that's because for those of us who have committed to follow Jesus with our lives, we know that one of the things that God asks from us to demonstrate our faith in him is to give him a tithe and an offering. And a tithe, tithe means tenth, the top 10% of what he provides for us. He asks that we return to him and then trust him to meet our needs. And then we have an opportunity to give an offering as well, which is on top of our tithe. Now, I heard this guy this week, he was talking and he said, the tithe opens the windows of heaven and the offering determines how much it's going to come out. Really? <laughs> wow. Um, so we can buy blessings from heaven with, mon- with money. God promises that he'll throw open the windows of heaven and flood you with blessing when you tithe and when you give. So I can- Now, by the way, we're going to deal with this passage from Malachi uh, later in the uh, in this episode. We're, I'm going to flat out challenge what she's saying here about how God says that he's going to throw open the floodgates of heaven and bless us if we tithe. You'll see why this is not actually applicable to Christians when we read it in context. But uh, let's continue with Kelly. Here comes the part where... That sounds eerily like Johann Tetzel from the Roman Catholic Church. I had this image in my mind of like, you know, heaven and these windows. And there's like a little gnome. I don't know why the gnome is in my head. But it's like, it's like the little gnome is kind of waiting and he hears the tithe hit the offering bucket. And so he like opens the window and he looks out. And then he hears the offering, the offering on top of the tithe hit that bucket. And he's like, all right. And he starts shoveling the blessings out the... I thought it was cool, but... So there's a gnome in heaven. Um, you're going to find out that apparently that gnome is God. And, he, you know, he's sitting next to his window. Um, he wants to bless you, but what he's, 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 when, when he hears your offering hit the bottom of the offering bucket, then he, he opens the windows of heaven in anticipation of showering blessings on you. And then he waits to see how much your offering is on top of your tithe, and if it's big enough... He'll start showering blessings from heaven. In other words, you can purchase blessings from God with your money. That doesn't take faith at all. Um, wow. I, yeah, I want you to hear this again. Of heaven and flood you with blessing when you tithe and when you give. So I kind of had this image in my mind of like, you know, heaven and these windows. And there's like a little gnome. I don't know why the gnome is in my head, but it's like, it's like the little gnome is kind of waiting and he hears the tithe hit the offering bucket. And so he like opens the window and he looks out. And then he hears the offering, the offering on top of the tithe hit that bucket. And he's like, all right. And he starts shoveling the blessings out the... I thought it was cool, but anyway, yeah. thank you. Yeah. You know, it's so it's so interesting that, uh, you know, the uh, Roman Catholic Church during the medieval period, just prior to the Lutheran Reformation, um, it was engaged in a building campaign to build St. Peter's, and uh, the way they raised money was sending out guys into the European countryside like Johann Tetzel to sell indulgences. Indulgences in this particular case were used to, well, you can use them to, you know, to prepay for sins. Uh, you could uh, and uh, you could use them to spring a, a deceased relative out of purgatory, apparently. And uh, Johann Tetzel's uh, um, jingle was, when a coin in the coffer rings a soul from purgatory springs. Uh, um, <clears throat> Pastrix Kelly Dykstra isn't quite as... Uh, Poetic is um, 
Johann Tetzel was, but uh, when you, when your tithe hits the bottom of the offering bucket, the gnome in heaven opens the window, and when he hears how much your offering was on top of it, he starts showering blessings at you from heaven. It's not what the Bible teaches, by the way. This is pure legalistic self-righteousness. This has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but Lee, continue. I know you love me. Thank you for applauding me there. Okay, anyway, that was just a picture I had in my mind, but I love that because the tithe lifts the curse of sin off of our finances. And then when we give on top of that, God's like, not only am I going to meet your needs, but I'll also bless you. So, Yeah, so the tithe lifts the curse of sin off of our finances. And then the offering then makes it so that God wants to bless you. Hmm. I'm not familiar with any passages of Scripture that uh, teach this particular bizarre teaching, but I don't know where she gets this from. She gets it from Robert Morris. Um, I'm going to play one more um, one more thing that uh, she said that is worth passing along. And uh, this has to do with apparently, uh, you know, this idea that uh, if you got, you got to plant a seed in order to uh, get a blessing from God. Here, here, here's Kelly Dykstra. This, this, by the way, is flat out of the word faith heresy. Here we go. First night of the conference, the dude got up to uh, talk about the offering. And I'm just like, I was checking out because I paid money to go to the conference. Okay. So I'm like, yeah, I paid my money. I paid my airfare. I'm paying for my hotel, you know, like the whole thing. Right. And then he was like, he was talking about how we could contribute toward the ministries of that church. And suddenly I started thinking, who am I to think that my church is the only place that I should be giving? So I'm like, hmm, and I look at Eric and he kind of looks at me. And then he said, this was it. The guy goes, and I don't know if he's like reading from the same book as our pastor, but he goes, and remember, even if you think you don't have a lot, when in need, plant a seed. And I'm like, oh, now I got to do it. <laughs> because there are some things I'm trusting God for right now. And- hmm so if you're trusting God for some things, well, God's not going to give them to you until you plant a monetary seed. The bigger the seed, the bigger the blessing. And um, they'll show God just how serious you are so that uh, he can throw open the floodgates of heaven and, and, and give you that thing that He's that you're trusting him for. No, you're not trusting him for it. You're buying it from him. This is purchasing a blessing from God uh, via via money. The Bible doesn't teach this. This is all part of the same shtick that you hear from tele-evangelists, uh, you know, from, you know, from the defunct Jim and Tammy Faye Baker enterprise, uh, from TBN, from, you know, from uh, Benny Hinn, from, you know, from T.D. Jakes and all of these word faith heretics that uh, apparently the way you earn, you, you earn blessings from God by buying them. So this is what we are going to um, challenge today. And the way we're going to challenge this is by going to the source. Okay, where did Kelly Dykstra learn this heresy from? Answer, she learned it from a guy by the name of Robert Morris, who is uh, who is the pastor of Gateway Church out there in Texas. And um, and so so that you can hear it straight from the horse's mouth. This is The name of this uh, sermon, by the way, is The Prosperity Test. And this is Robert Morris teaching the basic principles that he lays out in his book, The Blessed Life. Um, And we're going to tear this thing apart limb by limb, verse by verse, using sound biblical doctrine and Christian theology and a proper understanding of law and gospel. 
Okay. And in order to do that, we're going to have to spend a lot of time in the book of Galatians. I apologize for the in-depthness necessary to tear this apart, but you've got to see why this thing falls flat. And when we take a look at all of the passages that he lays out, not one of them is going to teach what he says it teaches. And you're going to see that this teaching that Kelly Dykstra teaches, that your money's cursed until you tithe, it's not what the Bible teaches for Christians at all. But here is Robert Morris in his sermon entitled The Prosperity Test, where he lays out these so-called biblical principles. Okay, uh, open your Bibles to Exit Malachi 3 and Exodus 13. Now, we are in our series, Dream to Destiny, and we have three more messages, including this week. So two after this, and I'll preach these three straight in a row, and uh, then as I do in June, I'll, I'll, we'll have our family vacation. So uh, we're talking about that every person has a dream from God, just like Joseph did when he was 17, and every person has a destiny just like Joseph did as he stepped into his destiny beside Pharaoh to save a world from a famine. In the same way, God has a dream for you as a destiny. But there are 10 character tests that we all have to pass to get from our dream to our destiny. We've talked about Okay, now immediately you should say that's not what the Bible teaches. Okay, nowhere in the scriptures. In fact, you could search from Genesis to the book of maps in your Bible, and you will nowhere find a single passage that says God has a destiny for you, just like he had for Joseph, a big dream, big plans for your life. He really wants to use you to make a difference in the world the same way he used Joseph to make a difference in the world. But but, 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 there's 10 character tests that you've got to pass. And until you pass them, well, God's not going to give you this dream destiny. In fact, you you might miss the whole thing. And so, yeah, no, there isn't a passage of Scripture that says anything like this. In fact, I'm sorry, but Robert Morris is selling you something. He's selling you a lie. He's telling lies about God. This is not what the scriptures teach. How do I know? Well, the reason I know this is because I understand what the Bible teaches between the difference between the law and the gospel, the difference between the law and the gospel. Now, the, the commandment in the scriptures to tithe is found in the Levitical law. And we're going to get into this, okay? These guys constantly misquote Malachi chapter 3, and he's going to do that shortly. But what we're going to do is we're going to break this down to for you by looking at what the New Testament says regarding how we are to understand the law, okay? And here's the reason why, okay, is because when you read the Old Testament— there's key things that go on in the Old Testament, and you need to properly be able to put them in the pl- in the right places and interpret them correctly, so that you don't you're not duped and fall for a false gospel. Okay, so here's the deal: the key instrumental event in the early part of the book of Genesis after the flood is the covenant that God made with Abraham. Okay, and it was a covenant by grace, given given promises that were received by faith. Now, after that covenant 
is the thing that God is going to bless the whole world through because God promised to bless the whole world through the seed of Abraham. Go back and read your book, read Genesis, and you'll see what I'm talking about. The Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians is going to make reference to this. So the idea here is, is that he's going to point out that the key thing is that salvation is a given as a gift by a promise made to Abraham that was fulfilled by Jesus Christ, who is the seed of Abraham, and that the Mosaic law, which came 430 years after uh, God made this covenant with Abraham, does not annul the covenant that he made with Abraham. In fact, the law was given for a specific reason, and it cannot and does not annul the covenant made by Abraham, or made to, to Abraham, okay? So you kind of have to put this all in the timeline. Keep this all in mind, because this is what's going on when we read the book of Galatians. Now, let me give you just a little bit more historical context context for the book of Galatians, and that is, is that we read in the book of Acts that... Um, Paul came into sharp con- uh, conflict, theological battle, if you would, with a group of people called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers really had this really pernicious habit of coming into churches that Paul had planted and saying to the people who in these churches, listen, that Paul guy, I know he told you that you're saved by grace through faith alone as a gift, but... Yeah, he didn't tell you the truth. No. Yeah, see, here's the deal. You Gentile Christians, unless you agree to be circumcised, which is one of the requirements of the law, unless you agree to be circumcised, you can't be saved. Okay? So what they're doing is they're mixing the good news of what Christ has done for us, salvation by grace through faith as a gift, and they're mixing it with works righteousness from the Mosaic law, namely circumcision. Now, this is exactly what Robert Morris is doing as well. Okay, Now, he might say, well, I'm, we're saved by grace, of course, but I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about you receiving from God um, uh, this dream uh, destiny for your life. The Bible doesn't promise that. God never promises that at all. Okay? He's created his own theology. He's created his own gospel, his own good news. But it's not good news because it's totally contingent upon you passing 10 character tests, which are nowhere written in the Bible, because Robert Morris is the guy who discovered these things. Okay, so let's go back to the book of Galatians. So what's happened is the Judaizers had come into the churches in Galatia, told the men, in the Gentile Christians there, they aren't saved unless they agree to be circumcised and to live according to the customs of the Mosaic law. Paul then writes this letter to them and makes it very clear that they've been taught a false gospel, and if they believe it, they're not saved. Okay, let me let me read then this harshly worded letter written by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. By the way, if you want more of the historical background of this, go into the book of Acts and read Acts chapter 15, and you're going to read that you'll read the whole history there. It's part of Acts chapter 15 is alluded to here in uh, this letter, but I'm not going to spend time on that. You'll have to go and do your homework. But here's the idea. Galatians chapter 1 verse 1, Paul An apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be anathema. That means eternally damned or condemned. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be eternally damned or accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and then I returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him for fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then, after fourteen years... I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I, am, I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had run in vain. But eat, not even Titus, who was with me, was forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Now, this is important, okay? Same principle applies here, because in the Mosaic Law, we the, the commandment to tithe is there, as well as the command for circumcision, okay? And the same reason why this circumcision doesn't apply to Christians is the same reason why tithing doesn't apply to Christians. It's the same reason. See, Robert Morris is trying to pull a fast one. He's trying to be an expert on the law of God, but he doesn't understand the book of Galatians and that the book of Galatians makes it clear that we're not declared righteous or earn anything from God by obeying the law. You're going to see that in a minute here. So again, keep in mind, the same reason why circumcision doesn't apply to Christians is the same reason why tithing doesn't apply to Christians. And you'll see this as we get into these texts, but I got I to gotta lay some groundwork here. Okay, so Paul here, he goes to Jerusalem. He has an uncircumcised Christian man, Greek man with him named Titus. And Titus, 
even though he went to go visit uh, Peter and James and the, the people of the church in Jerusalem, he was not compelled to be circumcised. Why? Because Christians are not under the Mosaic law. And you're going to see that here in a minute. Okay, so, <clears throat> but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential, they added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship and to Barnabas as well, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, only they asked us to remember the poor, which was the very thing that we were eager to do. But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews, they acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So what was happening is, is that Peter came and visited the, the Christians in Antioch, which was full of Gentile uncircumcised, um, you know, Greco-Roman Christians. Yeah, these are not good Jewish boys. These were uncircumcised Greco-Roman Christians, okay? And he was okay until, well, the, the, the circumcision party showed up from Jerusalem, and then he kind of started to withdraw himself and not hang out with them and, you know, to distance himself, which was contrary to the gospel. So what did Peter, uh, what did Paul do? <laughs> Paul let Peter have it, Okay. Here's what it says. Um, so he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified. That is, declared righteous. Justification is a legal pronouncement. It's the verdict of not guilty. So you are you, a person is not declared righteous by works of the law. Let me emphasize this again. Let me read this again. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, and yet we know that a person is not declared righteous by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to pause right there and ask this question. If Robert Morris is telling the truth, then we have to come to the conclusion that God wants to give you a big Joseph-sized dream for your life, but you have to first be declared righteous by your obeying of the Mosaic law. By your keeping the law. In other words, you have to first be declared righteous before God by you passing these character tests. This is flat out contradicted by this passage right here in Scripture. You can't be declared righteous by works of the law because you don't keep God's law perfectly. Not even close. 
But let me continue. So we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, and yet we know that a person is not declared righteous by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be declared righteous by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be declared righteous or justified. Plain and simple. You can't be declared righteous before God by works of the law. So you can't pass the 10 character tests that Robert Morris is talking about here because you're not declared righteous by works of the law. In other words, um, Robert Morris not be teaching the truth. He, in, in reality, is a Judaizer, at least a weird form of one. Anyway, we continue, verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ and a servant of sin? Well, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice what he says here. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you can earn a big, humongous, uh, Joseph-sized destiny by passing 10 character tests, you, you can be declared righteous before God without Christ. You don't need Jesus. Christ, didn't die, Christ died on the cross for no good reason then. Okay? Paul is going to let the Galatians have it now. Here we go. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The answer is by hearing with faith. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The answer to the question is by hearing with faith. If you think that you earn miracles by obeying God, you are in direct violation of what this passage says. And that's exactly what Eric Dykstra said as well. In, in that same sermon, we played this earlier this week, in that same samurai sermon, you know, this Code of the Samurai, he literally said that if you want to be blessed by God, you want to see miracles, then you have to obey, you have to sacrifice, you have to give. <laughs> Paul says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law? No. Or by hearing with faith? That's the one, yes. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And now here comes the historical key part of this. This is very important, okay? Think, along, think in your mind, uh, you know, stretch out in your mind a timeline. 
And in that timeline, you've got the beginning of creation, you've got Noah's flood, and after Noah's flood, the life of Abraham, and this covenant made by God with Abraham unilaterally. God is Abraham was asleep during, when the covenant was cut. He was just absolutely passed out. God is the one who made this with him and gave it to him as a promise. So then after the life of Abraham, in that, in that timeline, put along in there, 430 years later, 430 years later, God reveals the Mosaic Law on Mount Sinai. And Paul's going to make a point, and that is, is that the Mosaic Law, which was given on Mount Sinai 430 years after Abraham, cannot and does not nullify the covenant that God made with Abraham 430 years earlier. And there's a different reason why God gave the law, and Paul's going to explain it. So when we look at the Mosaic Law, that has to be interpreted through the book of Galatians and the purpose that the law serves. Okay, here we go. Verse 7, so know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, not, not the, those who obey the law. Know then it is those of, who, of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, who is the man of faith. Verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Now you're going to hear Robert Morris talk about curses, okay? But here's the curse that the, that the, that the Apostle Paul talks about. All who rely on... On works of the law. That includes tithing. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and continue to do them. Now it is evident that no one is declared righteous before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Now, this is the important part. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So everybody who is trying to you know, be declared righteous before God by works of the law is under a curse. But here's the gospel. Christ redeemed us. He's the one who redeemed us by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. That means by a gift. To give a human example, brothers, even when, uh, with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Think, think contract here. No one can change a contract once it's been signed. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and that to your offspring, who is Christ. So this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years after this covenant, does not annul a covenant that was previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. 
So the law doesn't make void the promise that was given in this covenant. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So why then was the law given? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promises had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Well, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Spirit imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were all held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified, that's declared righteous, by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offsprings, offspring, and you are heirs according to the promise. You'll notice that Christ does it all for us. Now watch what he does here. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but you're a son. And if you're a son, then you're an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to you have come to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I'm afraid that I might have labored in vain over you. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I have also become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing that you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that, you, to, that, they make, that they might make much of you. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present, but with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you 
with you now and change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and another by the free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. The women, the, these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit uh, with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but we're children of the free woman. For free is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look. I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Again, I testify to every man who accepts circumcision that he is now obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed, and I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. We'll stop there. You get the point. In summary, here's the idea. The law, which was given on Mount Sinai 430 years after the covenant was made by God with Abraham by promise, by faith, can't nullify the promise, the covenant that God made with Abraham. Salvation is by grace through faith. As it says in Romans chapter 4, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So here's the deal Robert Morris is a modern-day Judaizer. He is enslaving people by bringing them back to the Mosaic law and making, trying to create the impression that somehow you earn brownie points or are made righteous or earn things from God by keeping the Mosaic law. You don't. You can't. If you do that, if you think that you're going to earn something from God through the Mosaic law, You're under slavery. You're in slavery. 
plain and simple. You who would try to earn from God your dream destiny by tithing, you are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the law. Now, that forms the correct understanding of law and gospel, which then gets us to what the New Testament really does teach regarding giving, okay? This is, and the Apostle Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Notice it doesn't say each one must give 10%. It says each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So here's the idea. When it comes to you, Christian, supporting your local pastor or supporting the preaching of God's word, you're free to give as much as you have decided to give in your heart. If you want to give 10%, you are free to do that. If you want to give 20% of your income, you are free to do it. Whatever you do, though, you don't give reluctantly and don't give under compulsion. If you're being if you're giving to your church because you're told you have to because God demands it, that's the Mosaic law. And then you're being forced to give under compulsion. We're we're set free from that. And by the way, righteousness is not through the Mosaic law. Instead, Christians are to give as they've decided in their heart, the amount that they want to within their own heart. If you want to give your pastor 20 bucks when the offering plate comes along and the support of your congregation $20, give them 20 bucks. If you want to give more, then give more. You are free in Christ to give as little or as much as you want. But keep this in mind. Scripture does make it clear that those who preach the word are to earn their living from the preaching of the gospel. And it's, I, th- I think Scripture, you can make a very good scriptural claim that to withhold, withhold money from the people who are proclaiming the gospel and teaching you the word, that's not right. That's not right because God really does want those who preach to earn their living from preaching and teaching the word. And it's really tough for them to do that if you don't support their preaching and teaching. Okay? That's the idea. That's the idea. But do so not reluctantly and not under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And by the gospel, we're free to give as little or as much as we want and need. And the reality is if you truly understand the gospel, if you truly understand how you've been set free in Christ by his shed blood on the cross and that we are declared righteous not by keeping the law but by the fact that Christ kept the law perfectly for us, that good news, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And that good news truly, really creates joy and thanksgiving in our hearts that we can't help but want to support those men who are preaching that gospel. So that's the counterpoint. This is this is the setup now. Robert Morris and Eric Dykstra and Kelly Dykstra, because they're teaching Robert Morris's principles here, 
are, in a sense, Judaizers. And they're under a curse because cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the law. They're modern-day Judaizers. Let's continue now with uh, Robert Morris's sermons so that you can hear more of this. We continue. The pride test, the pit test, the palace test, the purity test, the prison test, the prophetic test, the power test. Okay, this week is the prosperity test. The prosperity test. Now, I'm going to read in X, I mean, in uh, Genesis. Don't you find it odd that the 10 tests that, that Robert Morris has discovered all by himself, no other Christian has discovered these. They all begin with the word P. Is to start, but the reason I asked you to turn to Malachi and Exodus is because I want us to get there, and it's very important. So let me say this. Every person takes the prosperity test. I know what you're thinking, and I know prosperity has a bad word in our connotation many times in this day and age in the church, but simply it means that God wants to prosper us so we can bless others or be a blessing or send missionaries and evangelists around the world, such as David. God wants us to be able to sow into the kingdom of God, but he, we all... Notice the but. God wants us to be able to sow, but... All will pass or take this test every time you get paid. Every time you get paid, you take a test. Hmm, wow, I had no idea. The Bible, I, I can't find any verses that say this. Can you please show me the passages that teach the prosperity test? Hmm? There's none. Every time. Whom are you going to honor first with that income that you've received? It's a very simple test. And if God is not first in your life, in this area, I can't get the rest of your life in order. You have to, I, I, I don't know how to say that any stronger. If I So apparently, I mean, this is, this is such an important test that's nowhere mentioned in the Bible. But it's really important uh, to God that you pass this test that's nowhere written in the Bible, nowhere mentioned in the Bible. But if you, pass, if you don't pass this test, then your life, your, the rest of your entire life is going to remain, well, completely screwed up. Because you fail to pass this test that is mentioned nowhere in the Bible. Can't get you to honor God first. I can't get two, three, four, five, six, seven, and eight to line up in your life if I can't get God to be number one. But when God's number one, everything else lines up. It's amazing. It sure is amazing. Can you please show me where this prosperity test is actually proclaimed and taught clearly as a test that I have to take every time I get paid? Hmm? So uh, let me read you this in Genesis, and then we'll get over to Malachi, all right? This is about Joseph, Genesis 41, verse 33. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh, this is Joseph speaking after he interpreted. Okay, now, uh, by the way, this is what, you're, what he's engaging in here is called eisegesis. This is reading something into the text. Ice means into. So he's reading into the text this prosperity test and basically going to make the claim that Joseph abided by this you know he knew about this prosperity test and he he even practiced it himself even though the text doesn't say that he's not exegeting he's eisegeting exegeting means to read out he's eisegeting reading this in and i'm going to show you that th this doesn't make any sense at all because of the historical context of this passage from genesis 41 but let him uh, make his point here and then i'll point it out to you pharaoh's dreams i, I need to give you a little background Pharaoh had dreams, two dreams, seven fat cows, seven thin cows. They both came up out of the river. 
the seven thin cows ate the seven fat cows. Then he woke up, then he went back to sleep. When he went, when he went back to sleep, he had a dream of seven uh, heads of grain that were very ripe, and then seven blighted heads. The blighted heads ate the good heads of grain. And he woke up. None of the magicians could interpret the dream. They called Joseph. Joseph interprets it. And then this is what he says, verse 33. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. Then that food shall be as reserve for the land for seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. Obviously, his interpretation was there will be seven good years and then seven years of famine. Let's take one-fifth, 20%, during the seven good years and save that grain, and we'll use that grain during the seven years of famine. His plan was so good that he literally fed the whole world during that seven years of famine. Other nations came to Egypt to buy or to get grain, and he extended Egypt's control over the whole world by trading land for grain for people. So he's a very wise man. When I, the first time I I preached this series eight years ago, the first time I preached this series, I had three points on this message. Let God be first, uh, learn to wait, and live below your means. How to pass the prosperity test. Let God be first, put God first in your life, learn to wait, and live below your means. Now, here's what happened. What I'm doing this series now is praying through all of this. And as I prayed through this, I could not get past point one. Let God be first. I travel nearly every week. Nearly every week, I'm somewhere in a pastor's conference uh, or in another church that has tremendous influence in the whole world, like I was last weekend when John was here. And my message, you know, is on the blessed life, putting God first. I began to feel overwhelmed about two weeks ago, thinking about here I go all over the world, and the book has gone all over the world. I can't even, I don't, last time I heard it was in 23 languages around the world. Uh, and this is a message, it's my life message. About two weeks ago, I got so burdened because I thought, how many people now are at Gateway that still haven't caught this? How many of the sheep that I'm responsible for, that I will give an answer to the chief shepherd, still haven't got this. And so as I begin to study this message, these, there were the, uh, these other points about learn to wait, live below your means, and that's how, you, you know, but I couldn't get past, let, uh, uh, let God be first, put God first. And so I got so burdened about this. And by the way, Joseph did this. We, we- okay, now this is the important part. Now he's going to make the claim that Joseph did this. Watch this. This is actually a supreme Bible twist, because he's omitting particular historical data. I'll explain it in a second here. So he's going to make the claim that Joseph passed this prosperity test himself by putting God first. Really, can you show me that in the text? Where do we see that? Watch what happens. You notice Joseph saved, and that's part of the prosperity test, is living below your means and saving. But did he put God first? Let me show you a verse. Genesis 47 verse 26 says, And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth, watch, except for the land of the priests only. 
which did not become Pharaoh's. Okay, now he's quoting this verse and somehow making a point here that this proves that Joseph passed the prosperity test by making it so that uh, the, the, the land of the priest did not become Pharaoh's. Okay, let me put this back in historical context. Uh, at the time of uh, Joseph's uh, sojourn in, um, in Egypt, were there any priests who were priests to the one true God? Answer, no. All of the priests of Egypt were priests to false gods. Horus, Osiris, <laughs> Isis, and the like, right? So why on earth would somehow, because in the land of Egypt, the priests of the false religions, the false religion of Egypt, because they, they didn't fall, they didn't, you know, that, that, that somehow there was something set aside for them, that that fulfilled the put God first part. That could only make sense if giving money to a false religion or to you know you know like the false religion of the ancient egyptians which was a death cult somehow god sees that as qualifying as being given to him this is a complete con that uh, robert morris is trying to pull on these people and unfortunately it looks like he's succeeding yeah, this was not an egyptian principle this was an Jewish principle, an Israeli principle. God said, that is mine. That belongs to me. Here's what he did. He said, okay, we're going to give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Oh, except for the tithe. Except for the land that belongs to the priest. Yeah, these would be priests of the false religions of Egypt. That belongs to God. Which God? Horus? Osiris? Ra? Isis? Which which of the gods did that belong to, Robert? I have such a burden that we as a congregation get this area of our lives right. Here's the number one reason I hear why people don't tithe. Here's the number one reason. Pastor, I can't afford to tithe. Listen to me. If you don't hear anything else I say today, listen to this. You will never, never be able to afford to tithe until you tithe. You got a verse for that? You'll never be able to afford to tithe until you tithe. Here's the reason why. Tithing removes the curse. Mm. Okay, so tithing removes the curse. Huh. Yeah, I just read in the book of Galatians that cursed is everyone who tries to be declared righteous before God by works of the law because the law says cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the law. The same reason why circumcision doesn't apply to Christians as a requirement today is the same reason why the tithe does not apply to Christians. The same reason. I just showed you from the book of Galatians. He's trying to take us back to the Mosaic Law, and now he's saying that our, our finances apparently are cursed unless we tithe. And we have to, we, by our own money, by our own blood, sweat, and tears, by our own efforts, by our own keeping of the Mosaic Law, have to redeem our money, which apparently is cursed. Hmm. And until you tithe, you're under a curse, and as soon as ever you start to get ahead, something else will break. 
Can I have an amen? <laughs> no, you can't, because I can think of many, many wealthy pagans who don't tie the cent, not even a single slug, nickel, or red cent to a single congregation or a church, whose lives seem to be rather fine. They're wealthy. They have a nice home. They've got a fine family and wife and kids. Uh, they can travel and do whatever they want, and, and uh, their lives don't seem to be broken down at all. How come God isn't cursing them? Hmm? <laughs> Something else will go wrong. You, you, you will never be able to. And I'm telling you, as a pastor, I, I'm so burdened that every member, not just our core, not just our leadership, every member get out from under the curse. And this is, why, this is why I want you to turn to Malachi 3. Malachi 3, verses 8 through 11. Will a man rob God? Can you imagine? This is God talking, by the way. And by the way, this is the Bible. Okay, now I'm going to point something out right at the front. I'm going to let him spin out for just a little second here. But I'm going to point this out. He's taking this out of context. If you've ever heard me point out how uh, pastors take out like Jeremiah 29 or something, uh, Jeremiah 31, or I forget the passage now where, you know, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and you know, plans for good. When you go back and you read it in context, you realize that's not addressed to you or me. That was addressed to the exiles in Babylon at a particular time in history. Same principle applies here. Who's Malachi talking to? Will a man rob God? You have robbed me, but you say, uh, in what have I robbed you? In tithes and offerings. Hmm. Who is God speaking to? Because the prophet Malachi was somebody whom the word of the Lord came to specifically. And he was a prophet to Israel at a time when Israel was going astray. And he was called to bring Israel back, back, okay, to a proper, to a proper religion and to, and to obeying God. But here, the the uh, the issue is is that the old theocracy of Israel is not what we're under as as New Testament Christians. We're not under that. So this idea here is who was Malachi talking with? The to- the context will tell you this, and I'll show you this, and I'll help you understand in just a minute how to properly understand this text. Again, the same principle that applies to. Why Christians are not required, Christian men are not required to be circumcised, same principle from Galatians, applies regarding the tithe. It's all part of the Mosaic Law. It was given for a specific reason, too. And I'll show you from the Mosaic Law what the reason for the tithe was. But here we go. I know it missed the New Testament by 16 verses. I'm aware of that. And I wish God had put it in Matthew. I wish he would have. It was actually 400 years, but 60 verses. And I said, God, if you'd put that in the New Testament, it would have made my job easier as a pastor. You know what the Lord said to me? Mm. So he's getting direct revelation from God. And at this point, I'm going to have to say he's a false prophet because the God who's speaking to him is contradicting what God's word says. I put it right where I wanted it. Because tithing's a test. No, nowhere in the scripture does it say that. Okay, now let's put this in context. Okay, if you got your Bible, flip on over to Malachi, Malachi chapter three. Okay, and I'm going to uh, I'm going to back things up a bit so that you can see the context. So the 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 three primary rules for sound biblical interpretation 
are context, context, and context. So when somebody's reading a verse to you, it's always a great idea to read three, four, five verses behind it or ahead of it and then after behind it. So to get, to get the, the immediate context so you can see what's going on. This clears up a lot of confusion and uh, it exposes a lot of false teaching too. In fact, about 94, 95, 96% of the time, this will clear anything right up. Okay, so we'll go to Malachi chapter 3. I'll start at verse 3, just so we can kind of figure out what's going on here. Here's what it says. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine, refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years." Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now notice, if you're familiar with the Mosaic Law, the book of Leviticus uh, in particular here in Deuteronomy, these are things that are mentioned very clearly in the Mosaic Law about sorcerers, and, and how to treat the sojourner and things like that. So God here is appealing to the Mosaic Law to people who are still in, under the Mosaic Law in the theocracy of God. Okay, we continue. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Did you catch that? I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob... This is who God is talking to. God here has sent the prophet Malachi specifically to address the children of Jacob. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, and you have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Okay. God, speaking to the children of Jacob, says this. Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, well, well, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now, what curse is that that's being referred to here? In the Mosaic Law, there are curses when that are associated with the Mosaic Law that basically says when the children of Israel do not keep the law, then there's curses that go along with that. That's what God's re- referring to here, specifically the curses that are laid out in the Mosaic Law for rebelling against him and not keeping his statutes, okay? Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? You say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me and the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more... Uh, need I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that you will not that he he will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and the vines in your field shall not fail to bear. Says the Lord of Hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight. Says the Lord of Hosts. Okay, you will be a land of delight. 
So this is a specific prophecy prophesied by Malachi to the children of Jacob. He's the children of Israel. It's interesting that he's calling him Jacob, not Israel. And specifically because they have robbed God regarding the tithes. Now let's take a look earlier in the Mosaic Law and see what God revealed, what the obligation of the nation of Israel was at that time regarding caring for uh, God's house. Numbers chapter 18, verse 20. And the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. To the Levites I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting, so that the people of Israel do not come near the tent of meeting lest they bear sin and die. But the Levites shall do the service of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations and among the people of Israel that they shall have no inheritance for the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as the contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore, I have said of them that they shall have no inheritance among the people of Israel. So here's what it boils down to. You know your Old Testament history. When the children of Israel are out wandering in the wilderness, they're getting ready to go into the promised land, and God is making something perfectly clear. The, the Levites, they are going to be priests, and they are going to serve God in the tabernacle, and they are not going to get a geographical inheritance. You can't look on a map of ancient Israel and find where the clan of Levi got a parcel of land that was their inheritance. They didn't. And so God established the tithe as an, a national income tax that all of the other tribes had to pay in order to give Levi an inheritance so that their needs would be met so that they can continue the work of serving God in the tabernacle, the sacrificial system of that time. That's what the tithe was all about. So God here in Malachi is, is chastising and rebuking the children of Jacob, not Israel. It's interesting that he calls them that. You know, it's, a, it's another you know, sign that God's not happy because they are not paying their income tax to take care of their obligation to their brothers, the Levites, so that they can serve God in the temple. That's the context of what's going on here. This has nothing to do with Christians tithing in their church. Not at all. When you put this back in historical into its historical context, you realize he's ripping this passage out of context in order to hold us captive and basically create the impression that God is demanding of you, Christian, that you are robbing God if you don't tithe. But that's not what the text says when you put it in context. Let me read you another passage from 2 Chronicles chapter 31. Here's what it says, starting at verse 4. It says this, And he commanded the people who lived in Jerusalem to give the portion due to the priests and the Levites that they might give themselves to the law of the Lord. Okay? So that's what this is referring to here. Okay? So the purpose of the tithe was a national income tax to take to basically pay the salaries of the priests. 
Got it? That's it. And if they disobeyed because it was part of the Mosaic law, then the curses of the, of the Mosaic law came into play, and that's what God's referring to here. Then Nehemiah chapter 30, uh, 13, verse 7, talks about, um, talks about you know, at another time when Israel wasn't doing, paying their obligation, their national income tax, to, take, you know, to pay the salaries of the people who were serving at the temple. Here's what it says. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 7. And they came to Jerusalem, and then I discovered, uh, I came to Jerusalem, and I, then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all of the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders that they cleanse the chambers, and I brought back their vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had each fled to his own field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, the wine, the oil, into the storehouses, and I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pedadiah of the Levites, and as their assistants, Hanan, the son of Sakur, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. So there you have it. This is what's really going on in Malachi chapter 3. At this time, the Israelites... The other tribes were not paying their national income tax, the 10% tithe that was established by God specifically to take care of and basically address the needs of the Levitical priesthood. This has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with you or me at all. Because we as Christians are told that we are to set aside in our hearts what we're going to give to the support of the preaching of God's Word. And we are to give freely and not under compulsion. The Israelites, who were living in the theocracy of the Old Testament Israel, had to give out of compulsion, not freely. Just like you and I have to pay our taxes under compulsion, because that's what the tithe was, a national tax designed to pay the salaries of those who were to tend to the sacrificial system in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. You see what's going on here? So God was judging Israel because they weren't paying their taxes. Now you know. Let's continue. It's a test of your heart, and for you to argue about it reveals your heart. And what I don't understand is why you would argue about being blessed. I, don't, I, can't, I can't comprehend. This is just a manipulation tactic. Read, listen to this. Will a man rob God? Yet you've robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? Now, this is God's answer. In tithes and offerings. Listen to this. You are. Which you've quoted out of context and you let out, left off the fact that this is referring to the tax to support the temple. Not you will be, you are cursed with a curse. 
For you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring, I want you to know this word bring, bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Notice it says bring them into the storehouse. It does not say send them to a television ministry or give them to a Christian school. Um, nor does he say give them to a church. The church is not a storehouse. There was a particular thing that, ha- that he had in mind there. Or give 5% here and 5% there. Bring the whole tithe. The whole tithe, one version says. Notice he's equating his church with the storehouse, and that's you can't do that historically. Into the storehouse. That there may be food in my house. That's one of the reasons that there's so much spiritual food here at Gateway Church. Now he's allegorizing. Is because people tithe. And try me or test me, the Hebrew word is test. Test me now in this, says the Lord. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing, there will not be room enough to receive it. And here's like the bonus. And if you order right now. It's about right. Infomercial is probably the right analogy here. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord. Listen to me. You are under a curse if you're not tithing. And listen, listen. No, no. The children of Israel, God invoked the curses of the Mosaic law on them for disobeying the law in the theocracy of Israel. You're, you're stretching the word curse here to mean something that the text is not referring to. Listen, God's not cursing you. We live in a cursed world. We live in a fallen, cursed world. That's not what he's referring to. He's referring to the curses in the Mosaic law. You don't know your Old Testament, sir. Here's what God says. I would like to redeem your finances out from under the curse. You just made that up. It's not what the text is saying at all. But if you, but you'll have to honor me first. You'll have to give me the first ten percent, and it's the first. So Exodus thirteen. Let's go through this principle of the first. Exodus thirteen, which, by the way, Exodus thirteen is not a commentary on Malachi chapter three. He's taking two passages and sticking them together. Verse one. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Consecrate to me all the firstborn." Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine, or it belongs to me. He uses that when he talks about the first fruits and the tithe. He uses the same terminology. Verse 12, then you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb, that is every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the males shall be or shall belong to the Lord. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with the lamb, And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. Let me make one statement here. You're going to lose it anyway. Listen to me. So if you don't tithe, if you don't give the 10% to this church, despite the fact that he's completely mangling God's word, he's threatening and basically saying, well, if you don't give it to us, God's going to take it from you anyway. And this is like, this is like highway robbery. Carefully, any first thing given is never lost. Any first thing kept is always lost. Listen, the tide's going out of your account, whether you give it or the devourer takes it. Wow. So this you're going to give under compulsion. This is the exact opposite of what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. Again, this is a Judaizing tactic. The same reason why 
circumcision is not required for Christians is the same reason why the tithe is not required. But you'll lose it if you don't give it. And all the firstborn among man of your sons you shall redeem. All right, here's point number one. The firstborn must be sacrificed or redeemed. That's what we just read. The firstborn must be sacrificed or redeemed. Why is it that you don't sacrifice or redeem your firstborn then? Did you do this with your firstborn? Hmm? Notice he's, he's allegorizing the firstborn thing to somehow now apply only to money. But why is it that you haven't redeemed your firstborn? Hmm? Why aren't Christians required to redeem their firstborn literally? You could, this is, you could tell he's playing fast and loose here. This is a money scheme that he's setting up. I know what we just read is Old testament I know that. That's my word for it. He's saying, okay, if, you're, if your animal is a clean animal and it has a firstborn, you sacrifice it. If it's an unclean animal, you redeem it with the sacrifice of a clean. Now, let me say that one more time. If your animal... How come Christian cattle ranchers aren't required to do this today? Hmm? animal is unclean then you have to redeem it with the sacrifice of a clean. Please hear me. Everything in this book points to Jesus. Everything. Everything. If your firstborn, like a lamb, was clean, a lamb is clean, you have to sacrifice it. I hope you get ahead of me on this. If your, if, if your firstborn is unclean, you have to redeem it with the sacrifice of a clean. Okay, I have a real simple question for you. Were you born clean or unclean? Unclean, we were all born in sin. And if you don't believe you're born unclean, if you're a parent here, just ask yourself this question. Did you have to teach your children to be bad? Or did it come naturally for them? We were all born in sin. But was Jesus born unclean or clean? Listen, the clean had to be sacrificed so the unclean could be redeemed. That's correct. That's what the gospel teaches. Here's what you need to hear. Maybe you never thought about it this way. Jesus is God's tithe. You got a verse that says that? Hmm? You know what? Why? Well, you know, you know what about tithing brings the blessing? Because you give it in faith. You don't pay all your bills and then give the tithe. You give the tithe first and then pay your bills. It's the bl- This is a confusion of what faith and obedience is. His, his definition of faith is obedience to the law. That's not faith. Faith is trust in the promises. We just read it in Galatians. Blessing, and it's, the, the, it's, the, it's faith that releases the blessing. It's not faith to give the last 10%. It's faith to give the first 10%. That's faith. And you have to understand, God gave Jesus in faith. God Really, God gave Jesus in faith. Hmm. This is the word faith heresy. God gave Jesus in faith. So God had faith that uh, apparently this would all work. You know, that uh, he, he would bless himself by giving Jesus in faith. This doesn't make any sense biblically. Another major red flag here. Gave Jesus while we were mocking him, beating on him, spitting on him, and nailing him to a cross. God didn't wait to see if you would straighten up to give Jesus. God gave Jesus while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God had faith that you'd straighten up because uh, of his sacrifice. There's no text that says this. This guy's literally rolling and smoking his own theology. 
So we, we just, I, it's so important to understand so many people talk negatively about tithing. You're talking about Jesus. He's God's firstborn. He's the firstborn among many brethren, it says. And God's firstborn was born clean, but he was sacrificed so all the unclean could be redeemed. And Except for their finances. No, their finances still renamed under the curse, and you've got to redeem that yourself. Jesus' redemption doesn't deal with that. Here's what God says. When you give the first one to me, the first portion is the redemptive portion. When you give the first portion to God, the rest is redeemed. You bring the other 90% out from under the curse, and 90% with God's blessing will go farther than 100% without. Now, you'll notice what he did there. He, he basically took Exodus 13 out of context, applied it to your income, and, to, and all of a sudden we've got this principle that he's discovered that applies to your checkbook. The Bible's not talking about your checkbook at all. Are you with me? All right, that's number one. Here's number two. The first fruits must be offered. The first fruits must be offered. Now, just By the way, if, if you listen carefully to what he does here from the book of Genesis, but open up your Bible to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. I have it ready because I'm going to show you that his interpretation is not what the Scriptures teach. Because we're, we're going to deal with the question of, why is it that God rejected Cain's offering and accepted Abel's? That's going to be the question. The Bible actually says why, and it says so in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. So, But he's going to ignore this passage and come up with his own reason. We continue. Stay there in uh, uh, Exodus 13. We'll come back to it. Exodus 23, verse 19 says, The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. Now, let me just say this again. Notice it never talks about, it never uses the word give when it talks about tithing. Let me tell you why. You can't give what doesn't belong to you. You can only bring it. God says, bring the tithe into the house of the Lord. You can't designate it. Don't, don't tell me you're going to send 3% here and 3% here and 4% here. You're not tithing. The tithe comes to the house of the Lord. If you want to give to a university or a missionary or something, you give that over and above the 10%. That's an offering. But the tithe, we return. We bring it to the house of the Lord. Um, why did God ask for all of the silver and the gold from Jericho? You ever thought about this? It's real simple. Because it was the first city in the promised land. He didn't say conquer 10 cities and then give me one. He said give me the first one and the rest are blessed. And by the way, when they got a verse for that, took some of it. And, and by the way, do you know where they were supposed to give it? Into the house of the Lord. It was consecrated for the house of the Lord. But when one of them kept it, Achan kept some of it, it was cursed. Listen so carefully to me. When you, when you bring it to the house of God, it's blessed, it's consecrated. When you keep it in your account, it's cursed. And, and please understand, I don't know why I hear the same testimonies from everyone. Everyone, tithers, all tithers give me the same testimony. We are so blessed. We are so blessed. Would you agree if you're a tither? Would you agree with that? Okay, but all non-tithers give me the same testimony. We can't afford to tithe. There's a reason. You're under a curse. I, I, I'm Apparently the curses of the Mosaic law are applying to you as a Christian. Doesn't make any sense at all. Not in light of Galatians and the book of Romans. I'm telling you, I, I, years ago when I preached on this here at the church, 08 the last time I preached on this. So if you're, if you're a guest, I don't preach on money every week, all right? 08, it's July of 08, it's the last time I preached on money, all right? 
But please, please, please hear me. I, I, I'm, I'm going to make you a deal. All right? You tithe for the rest of this year to Gateway Church. And if you're not fully satisfied, I'll give you your money back. I'll give you your money back. I promise you. The only reason. So you got a money back guarantee. Okay. Listen, you got to hear me. You know me. The only reason I'm asking you to do this is for your good. I'm tired of hearing about families that are, that are losing jobs and losing income and, and, and losing family and losing kids and losing marriages because the devourer is devouring them. Oh, so the reason why you lose uh, a child or a, or your marriage goes south is because you're under the curses of the Mosaic law. Mm-hmm. Despite the fact that you are a Christian and purchased and redeemed by the blood of Christ. Mm-hmm. Do I sound skeptical? I'm beyond skeptical. This is a con. This is a crime that's being committed against these people. And he tells us very simply, if you'll bring the tie to the storehouse... I will rebuke the devourer for your sake. It's a, it's a pretty good deal for Tim. He wasn't speaking to people in Texas. He was speaking to the sons of Jacob. Read it in context, sir. Percent. <laughs> okay, here's the point, though. The firstborn, the first fruits belong to God. Have you ever thought about this? Why did God accept Abel's offering, but he didn't accept Cain's? I know. I know. I'm going to answer the question. Hebrews chapter 11. Okay, are you ready? I'll start at verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things that are not seen. For by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made by the things that are visible. So we know this is true because we trust God's word. We trust God. Okay, We know We trust that God's word is telling us the truth that the world was created by the word of God. By faith, by trust, that's the Greek word pistuo or pistis means that it's it's this unwavering trust, okay? By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him up. Now before he was taken up, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. So what was the difference between Cain and Abel? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4 makes it clear. Abel trusted God. Abel had faith in God. Abel believed God. Cain did not have faith. As a result of it, without faith, it's impossible to please God. The reason why Cain did not please God is because according to Hebrews 11.6, Cain didn't have faith. Abel did. That's what the Bible says. Let's see what Robert Morris says. Okay, if you understand firstborn and first fruits, it's real simple. Just watch and see if you can figure it out. Genesis 4, verses 3 through 5. And in the process of time, in the process of time, important words, 
It came to pass that Cain brought an offering, an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Notice it doesn't say he brought first fruits. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Simple, isn't it? Abel brought the firstborn. He was a rancher. Cain was a farmer. He didn't bring first fruits. Listen to me carefully. God said, I'm not accepting that. Now, here's something you need to know. God, it's not just that God didn't. It's that he can't. God- mm-hmm. Despite the fact that I just read the biblical explanation for why God accepted Abel's sacrifice, because Abel had faith. Cain didn't. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, Robert Morris is compounding his heresy with more heresy. Watch this. God cannot accept second place because of his preeminence. God is always first. He's always first. He's perfect. He's first. He's above all. He's before all. He's higher than all. He's first of all. Okay, so the firstborn belongs to God. First fruits belong to God. Here's number three. The tithe must be first. The tithe must be first. Leviticus 27.30 says, and all the tithe of the land. You know what the Hebrew word for all there means? Yeah, all. (laughs) And all the tithe of the land, whether the seed of the land or the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. Yeah, Leviticus 27.30 is a law given in the Mosaic law to the children of Israel, the 10% income tax that was levied against all all of the other tribes to support the Levites and pay their salaries for the service that they're offering to their brothers at the tabernacle. That's what that's referring to. In other words, belongs to God. This is the same thing about the firstborn and first fruits. It is holy or set apart to the Lord. Okay, let's say that you own a a landscape company and you come to my home and uh, you say, okay, all of my... uh, Bushes, plants, all the materials are going to cost this much. My labor is going to cost this much. And my profit will be $1,000. That will be my profit. But this is how much. These are all the costs. So you need to pay all my costs plus my, my income or my profit of $1,000. So I agree. So I pay all that at the end of the job. And then I give you 10 $100 bills. One, two, three, four. Right there in your hand. All right. Now, you have 10 $100 bills in your hand. You have $1,000 in your hand. All right. Now, I have two questions for you. Number one, how much is the tithe? Okay, I know this is a math question. I'll get off of it as quickly as I can, okay? <laughs> but how much is the tithe? $100, right? If you got 1000 10%, $100. In other words, one of those 10 is the tithe, all right? So you have 10 of them in your hand. Here's question number two. Which one is the tithe? Yeah, you're saying that because you're in church. but here, And you're hearing this message. But here's the point. How do you know which one's a tithe? Listen to me carefully. It's the first one that leaves your hand. Mm-hmm. And if you give him the second, God can't accept it, and your money is still under the curse. This is all Robert Morris's mythology. This is not what the scriptures really teach in context. That's the tithe. And that's the one, according to the Bible, that has the, re- that's the redemptive portion. That's the one that has the ability to bless others. See, if you say, okay, I'm going to set aside some for the mortgage and set aside some for the light bill, set aside some for groceries in the car, and here's God's. Okay, you gave the tithe to the mortgage company. Listen to me very carefully. The mortgage company does not have the power to bless your finances. And you ought to know that after the last couple of years we've gone through in America. 
Don't give the tithes to the mortgage company. Give the tithes, say, here is God's portion first. Now set aside for the rest of my budget. God, here's yours. And the rest of the nine are blessed. Now, I'm not legalistic about it. Please understand. I'm- that is a complete lie. That is, that's, a, that's a diversion tactic. No, he is 100% legalistic about this. 100%. Just making the claim that he's not, this is nothing but pure, unadulterated legalism. It is a, an, basically a desire to re-enslave Christians under the Mosaic law. Not legalistic. I get paid the 15th and the 30th. I do my giving online. So on the 15th and 30th, I have my quiet time. You have a quiet time every day, not just on the 15th and 30th, by the way. But <laughs> on those days, in my quiet time, the first thing I do, it's the first thing I do, I open up and I give the tithe. First thing. It's first money it leaves my account. Now, let's just say that... Um, for some reason, um, I didn't do that. I was, um, uh, you know, I, I, I got up and I had to go to an early morning prayer meeting or something to church and I didn't get online. And so I go about my day and then I come home at night and I think, oh, it's the 15th. And I go online and I notice that Debbie's gone to the grocery store. Okay, I don't say, oh, that's great, honey. We're cursed. <laughs> you just made the point of saying that if you don't give the first 10%, if you give it to the mortgage company, the mortgage company can't bless you. I mean, you just, this is your reading of the text. What do you see in the text that somehow makes it possible then for your wife to spend the first 10% on groceries and you not to remain under the curse? Hmm? You gave the tithe to Tom Thumb and now we're cursed. <laughs> no, I'm not legalistic about it. And listen to me, God's not legalistic either. It's about the heart. But in my heart, in my heart, God knows he's first. Mm. You have a verse that says that. Hmm? And if you looked at my check register, if you looked at my check register, you'd see an entry from Gateway Church because that's where my income comes from. And then you'd see an out to Gateway Church, the tithe. Deposit, tithe. Deposit, tithe. Deposit, tithe. Please, please, please. Please, please, please. Please, I'm begging you as your pastor. I cannot get two, three, four, five, six, and seven to line up in your life. You keep asking me about your marriage. You keep asking me about your health. You keep asking me about all these things where the enemy is. So you're going to buy a good marriage from God. You're going to buy good health from God. Wow. Devouring you. And I'm telling you as your pastor, if you don't put God first, I can't take care of the rest. Are you, are you, is this okay? Are you hearing my burden? If you'll just put God first, God will take care of the rest. Let me show you one more. Exodus 13, look at verse 14. We stopped at verse 13 a moment ago. So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is this that you shall say to him? Now, remember, this is sacrificing the firstborn. You shall say to him, by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, it's very important, therefore, therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons are doomed. Okay, here's what he's saying. He's saying, there's going to come a day. Now, just think about a little kid. Little kid comes running the house, says, Dad, Dad, the sheep's having lamb. 
It's the firstborn. Oh, wow. So the father runs out. The whole family runs out. Oh, the miracle of birth. Father grabs, grabs, grabs the little lamb, takes it over, cuts his neck, lets him bleed to death. The little boy's watching this. Of course, you know what he's thinking, don't you? Don't mess with dad. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what he did, but, you know. Okay, okay. So, but here's what he said. He said, there's going to come a day when your son's going to say to you, um, he's going to get older. He's going to start noticing you do this. So one day he's going to come and he's going to say, uh, Dad. Um, now notice what he's doing here. He's attempting to come up with a, to describe the context that this is going to occur in Israel and now rework it in such a way that it now magically appears, uh, you know, in the 21st century, your son's going to come to you and while you're writing a check, want to know why you're doing it. That's not the purpose of that passage in Exodus 13 at all. I want to talk to you about something. Um, you may not even be aware that you do this. <laughs> uh, but um, uh, when, when all of our animals, when, when it has the first one, and again, Dad, you may not even know about this that you do, but um, when it has the first one... Um, you uh, kill it. And um, we're uh, in the, the ranching business, Dad. Yeah, by the way, just killing something isn't what gives it to the Lord. Notice that there were sacrifices at the tabernacle that were expected here because the Levites lived off of the fat portions of those animals. And uh, th- this is uh, cutting into our profits. And uh, again, I just want to just, I just wanted to bring it to your attention, you know, and because you might not even know. And so, I mean, just think, in one day, if you did this, wouldn't one day your son say, well, why did you do this? Okay, he said, here's what you do. You take your son and you say to him, son, I need to tell you something about our family that you don't know. We weren't always in the ranching business. We didn't have sheep. We didn't have land. Son, we used to be slaves. Right. This is in a Hebrew context. But God, with a mighty hand, delivered us and gave us all that we have now. Therefore, we gladly give to God the firstborn of all flock. Now, so this is written thousands of years ago, okay? I had this happen with all my kids. I remember my firstborn. Yeah, I, I, when he starts talking about his personal life, I, I, get, I get skeptical. I've written plenty of checks to the church, never had my kids ask, what are you doing, Dad? Josh, I'm, 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 I'm paying the bills one day. And I wrote the tithe check first, and then I said it over the side. I, I wrote it. I always wrote it first, and then I said it over the side. And then I'm writing the, for you younger people, we used to have these pieces of paper um, <laughs> called checks. But anyway, all right, so, so I set it over to the side, all right? And then I'm, I'm paying the bills, and Josh comes in. Now he's old enough to understand some numbers and some math and all, and he looks and he can read, you know, and he, he sees to the church and how much it is, and he says, Dad. Why do you give so much money to the church? And I set him on my lap. 
And I said, son, I'm going to tell you something that I've never told you before. Something about your daddy that you don't know. But your daddy wasn't always a Christian. As a matter of fact, your daddy was a very bad man. But God, with a mighty hand, delivered your daddy. Therefore, I gladly give to God the first of all of my income. Now notice, he pulls out the gospel here. He says, I gladly give. But everything he's preached up to this moment was pure, unadulterated, legal compulsion. If you want your marriage to survive, you better tithe. You don't want to lose one of your children to cancer, you better tithe. You don't want the devourer to come get you. you The boogeyman, of course, you know. And now he pulls out the gospel. Hmm, which is it? Because the two are mutually exclusive and contradictory in this particular case. I gladly do it. And I'm pleading with you as your pastor. This is a test. Listen to me carefully. If you can't handle money, you can't handle your destiny. So God's not going to give you your destiny until you pass this test. Now we're back to compulsion. And the Bible nowhere says that this is a test and that God's waiting to give you your destiny. But he can't until you pass this test. And you've got to pass it every single time you get paid or else you're not going to get your destiny. You will never fulfill your destiny if you can't get this area of your life straight. I promise you. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Nope. I'm not letting you pray for me. Nope. Um, wow. So that's where Eric and Kelly Dykstra, that's the person they get their doctrine of tithing from. And it's not a biblically correct or accurate teaching regarding tithing. Um, sorry, but Robert Morris sounds more like a con artist, more like he graduated from the King and the Duke Seminary. If you don't know what I'm referring to, uh, read uh, Huckleberry Finn, King and the Duke come up in there. Um, This was pure legalism. And not only that, it was a mishandling of God's word, a ripping of passages out of context, a weaving of his own theology, all to basically get motivate you all to give uh, legalistically the first 10% of your money to their church. Hmm. God warns us about guys like this. Titus chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. 
Yeah, that's I think what we're what we're seeing here. Somebody who's teaching for shameful gain, what ought not to be taught, because this isn't what the scriptures teach, and this is contradicted by the sound teaching of the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel does not teach this. This is contrary to and opposed to what the Bible teaches, the same principles that are taught in the book of Galatians that set us free as Christians to not have to be circumcised, also set us free from the Mosaic Law's demands, which were not made to us, regarding tithing. Instead, we are free in Christ to set apart that amount that we decide to give in our hearts so that we are cheerful givers, and not giving under compulsion. I mean, to invoke the curses of the Mosaic Law on Christians, this is absolute criminal behavior. And so that the answer to the question, is your money under the curse until you redeem it? No, it's not. That's a mythology, not a theology. It's a mythology taught by a very smooth talker, by a man who knows how to spin a yarn, but by a man who has learned that he can make a lot of money by twisting God's word and putting his own theology together. And the funny thing is, is that this particular teaching has never been a part of the Christian church, not the way he spun it. He's the one who's invented it, which tells you that's really not true, because this is not what the historic Christian church has taught from the beginning. Why? Because it's contrary to the gospel. All right, we're at the another, at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Just a reminder, I hate asking for money, by the way, after praying, after listening to a guy like this. Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, and we truly do depend upon you in order to keep bringing this important radio outreach to you, where we proclaim the gospel and show you biblically how people are twisting the Bible and teaching falsely and taking advantage of people. You can support us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And understand this, that your contribution helps make it possible for us to boldly proclaim the gospel and biblical truth. Your contribution supports the, the, the teaching and preaching and proclamation of Christ and Him crucified for our sins. And I can promise you that there are no promises regarding your contribution that God will save your marriage by your, you giving money or keep your kid from dying or anything of the sort. That's ridiculous. The Bible nowhere promises that. But I can promise that as long as God gives me breath and gives me to be able to proclaim the gospel and to do what we do here at Fighting for the Faith, your contribution will help make that possible. And it does make a difference in other people's lives because it, they hear the biblical truth, the biblical gospel that sets them free from bondage to slavery to false teachers like Robert Morris, Eric Dykstra, and Kelly Dykstra. All right, so what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. 
Until, well, tomorrow. May God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.